that old trust the institutions and just kind of not look into it by yourself model doesn't work anymore. It's never going to work again because people have too much access to information now. This is a good thing. It just means we need a new kind of framework for solving the who do I trust with things I don't know about problem. You're listening to The Brendan Murata Show. In this episode, I talked to Mike Elias and James Ellis about Idea Market. Idea Market aims to solve a very common problem we all have in today's information world. How do you know what to pay attention to and who to trust? As Mike and James will explain in this episode, Idea Market aims to solve that problem by actually allowing people to invest money into ideas and information they want others to pay attention to through cryptocurrency. This episode is also a deep dive into questions about the nature of truth, what actually is a fact, and the various challenges we're facing around information now. Now, here is Mike and James. In the film world, they say that you should have a two-sentence pitch for your movie. And I know in the startup world, they talk about an elevator pitch. You get in an elevator with a funder, a potential VC. What do you tell him when he asks, what do you do? So I'm curious for Idea Market, what is the two-sentence elevator pitch for what this is? Before we go really sure. deep into it. We are replacing the arbiter of credibility function that is typically played by media corporations with a public marketplace built on Ethereum. So what does that mean practically? Like, Because there's a lot of people in my audience who are just starting to get into the crypto thing. And so when you say built on Ethereum, that yeah. I don't know what their internal sure. representation of that is. But what does that, sure. what does that mean? So the crypto aspect is really just the vehicle for this. It's the tech that allows us to build this kind of thing. Um, but what we're doing is doesn't rely on crypto as a metaphor that much. It's really just the the stuff out of which it's built. You don't have to know a lot about trees in order to build a house out of wood. So the metaphors that we're plugging into are traditional markets like commodity markets where people anticipate the future value of things and markets kind of act as this crowdsourced judgment aggregator between parties with disparate interests and disparate desires and needs and, and conflicts. And the market sort of autonomously regulates between these by allowing each of those parties to make their own judgment calls based on their situations and their sense of the value of the thing at the time. And so markets have this kind of magical way of compressing millions of subjective judgments from all these different contexts into a, into a single data point, into just price. And so there's a lot of compression of like intellectual labor in markets. And we're using that same principle to come up with valuation mechanisms for information itself, the attention value of the information on the internet, because the internet means we have access to all the world's best information. And the giant gap between that best information that we technically have access to and the just terrible, absolute shit quality that I think your entire audience will agree <laughs> passes for common knowledge doesn't need to be there anymore. We have the technology to bridge this gap because we have access. It's not an access problem. It's that we need a system for farming in the world's best information from around the internet to the mainstream consciousness, to the uh, mass 
audience. So given that everyone has different reasons for wanting their favorite thing to get attention, we want to use markets to mediate between all these disparate desires and uh, have a, a coherent and not like dictator decided way for the world's best information to emerge into the world's largest pools of attention. Does that make sense? It does. It sounds like you're trying to solve the problem of how do I find the good stuff in all the noise? Is that an accurate understanding? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, th I think that is. Mm. It's interesting too, because I think that was the thing that search companies like Google were trying to solve in the early days of the internet. And of course, people sort of very quickly figured out how to game search. And then the search itself got manipulated and all these other things happened. And it's no longer the case that if you just type something into a search bar, you're going to find what you're actually looking for. So how does idea market solve that problem of trying to figure out, okay, what in all this media noise and all the things that are online, what is actually valuable yeah. here? The value is in bridging the gap between the world's best information on any topic and the ability to take action on that because we have enough you know, consensus around it. Typically, you have uh, little pockets of nerds who are interested in their thing, and they will go down the rabbit hole and find the best information on their thing. But they're an isolated, you know, little amateur group with no institutional power, with no political will, and no means of getting this amazing information, the attention that it needs in order to have an impact on the world. And what ends up happening is, even though we have access to all this incredible information, when decisions have to be made, there's not really an inroads for that information into the power structures that enable that information to influence those decisions. So we end up making civilization scale commitments and decisions based on information that is not good at all. It's, it's just terrible. And this is, you know, without getting into any kind of um, top-down conspiracy type stuff, this gap between the information that moves the world and the information that we could move the world with is just too large to be to be tolerated like that we miss out on incredible low-hanging fruit it's, it's like you know you've heard the joke about the guy who starves to death in the supermarket that's us information wise we're sitting there staring at the empty cardboard boxes with flies zipping around when we have this whole wealth of the history of humanity's knowledge and we're frankly not using it and that's that's kind of the frustration that that mm -hmm. instigated this so we're, we're in a position where we're going i don't know what how do I figure out what I should, what I need to know? We literally have everything at our fingertips, the, all the information ever. And so this is a sorting mechanism for that information. Yeah. It's for kind of bridging the gap between expertise and general knowledge. Like nobody can know everything. We all have to trust somebody. We all have to have some kind of reference point for where to look about issues on which we're not personally experts. And the current sort of knowledge, institutional knowledge machinery is doing a bad job of earning people's trust. And given that everyone has the internet and everyone can kind of check the experts and, and find reasons to doubt them and, and things like that. And the, the dialogue between the experts and the public is just not very uh, open and clear and respectful and just not, just doesn't work. That old sort of trust the institutions to sort things out and just kind of, 
not look into it by yourself model doesn't work anymore. It's never going to work again because people have too much access to information now. And this is, this is a good thing. It just means we need a new kind of framework for solving the, who do I trust with things I don't know about problem? Because the answers that we are inheriting to that question no longer work in the age of this much information. I just want to just want to add in there. I mean, it was just a discussion we were having yesterday as a team about this. Um, I mean, there is a, there is a minor. I don't want to I don't want to use the word political or conspiratorial element about it. But there's um, there is this element of the emperor's new clothes in relation to mainstream media, right? And what we're talk what Mike's talking about here in terms of this noise. You know, we all are basically now either born into grew up within or saw come about the the internet era where all of a sudden as we're saying we have at our fingertips absolutely every piece of knowledge basically that ever existed unless something is explicitly held back at some point it's it's up there it's out there and uh it's just not even evenly distributed right like the future but um the emperor's new clothes aspect is that everybody who's watching the news you know the news bbc cnn all these mainstream the mainstream media knows that this isn't the full picture, not by a long shot. They know they're give, being given a pigeonholed view of things. And the, the irony is that everyone knows this, but one of the things we've been speaking about recently is that there's almost a disbelief about what you know Mike's built at Idea Market because it's such a gargantuan task because it's a task that's so big that everybody knows about it. Everybody knows about the untrustworthiness of the media or the fact that you're not getting the full picture or the fact that you have an agenda. Like Everyone knows that. Right, the news has just become subjective, and that's uh, accepted. And so, to really to try and um, take that on now, I think people are probably in a little bit of disbelief. But this dispelling of the emperor's new clothes of saying, "No, no, here's a mechanism which can genuinely cut through the noise and uh, move us back towards a state where there is, you know, at least a trajectory towards uh, objectivity." Um, not that that's ever achievable. Uh, it's never going to be achievable, but you can certainly move towards it. And I think media corporations are increasingly their their trajectory seems to be just to survive and stay safe, right? Whatever that means to say the right thing, so that they don't get in trouble or they don't lose their funding or whatever, right? That, but ultimately, that's the way that everything dies if someone tries to do that. So there's a very there's a weird aspect about it that everybody everybody can see the falsehood and people probably think it's impossible to act on it. Well, in some way, what you guys are attempting is an easier project than what the dominant media itself is attempting. So I think that the dominant media itself is kind of seeing that there is this proliferation of information and a lot of it maybe is wrong. Like there are a lot of theories on the internet that are incorrect. And so they've taken on the even larger task of making themselves the arbiters of determining what is misinformation and what is not. And that top down method of control is actually a much harder task than what it sounds like you guys are doing, which is to crowdsource it and then create economic incentives for being right. So as I understand it with idea market, if you, you can essentially put cryptocurrency or money towards a certain idea. And if that idea turns out to be not as valuable as 
people thought it was, then there's an economic cost to them. Whereas the the emperor's new clothes element you mentioned, James, part of the challenge around that is that the emperor actually benefits from being wrong. He he's, he benefits from saying, oh, no, 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 I have the finest clothes you've ever seen while he's standing naked in front of you, making you see him in that state. Mm. So I want to ask more about uh, the crowdsourcing element, because I think that that's a place where the dominant media or the, the old media, whatever you want to call them, would get upset. They would say, oh, we can't trust the crowd. We have to trust the experts. And so how does the crowdsourcing element work and what makes that better than this sort of top-down model of, oh, we'll determine what the misinformation is? Sure. The the crowdsourcing model actually has a lot to do with trust. The trust the experts model is actually not new. The epistemology hasn't really changed. Public knowledge management hasn't really changed in hundreds, if not thousands of years. You have some kind of authority that sits at the top of the you know, political uh, structures and arbitrates. This is true. This is false. If you disagree with too much vigor, you're excommunicated or burned at the stake, depending on culture, you know, whatever, whatever's going on. But there's kind of this repeated model of create certainty and then enforce it. And hmm. the problem with that is, Certainty is one of the most relentlessly non-existent things in the universe. You're just, it, there's no way that you're not creating massive errors when you try to force certainty to exist. And then when you enforce it, you're perpetrating that error, like in, a, in an offensive, unjust way, you're creating justified resistance to that because there's too much necessity of personal judgment and anything knowledge related. If you trust the experts, that's a decision that you're making. And if the experts aren't earning your trust, that's something that's happening in here. And you have a, you're ultimately the arbiter of, of what you believe that can't be, can't be enforced. So the public knowledge models of the past of create certainty, which is impossible and then enforce certainty, which is immoral are running into the limits of technology that can route around both of those and has just a totally different means to it. We didn't have demo, like public access to infinite knowledge in the past. So we didn't have this particular way of confronting the limitations of that model. Uh, but we do now. So its absurdity is starting to stand out in stark contrast to the tools that we have now. So what markets allow people to do is be sure that their own complaints and opinions and judgments are a part of the conversation that matters. Because right now, if you have authorities or experts, even if they're right, there's not necessarily a reason for you to believe them. And if you have an objection that they're not addressing, then you then you feel doubtful, you feel uh, mistrustful, and there's not a way around that. You can't just say, well, trust me because I deserve it. That's kind of saying like, well, lend me $50,000 because I deserve it. And forget all those other times when I totally didn't. This is different. There's this kind of uh, just a almost parental, like, because I said so effect from the knowledge authorities. And now, you know, we're all kind of 
coming into our adulthood in the sense of we all now have so much information that the responsibility of of deciding what to believe is now squarely on the shoulders of the individual. And there's no world, there's no future in which that responsibility can be taken back. We the Promethean fire is out. We've we've got it now. So we need a system that works better in this environment than the create false certainty and force false certainty model because it just cannot survive in the information age. One thing one thing I want to just just add in there as well. I mean, relation what we're, what we're saying about these top-down systems of authority. I mean, I only think they're surviving because they're these these almost gargantuan relics of the past. I think if they weren't around when the internet began and then tried to contain the internet, I just don't think that would have ever ever would have worked. But they had the resources, they had the means and the know-how from day one to be able to basically be like, well, we were huge there, we're going to be huge here as well. And I would maybe sort of theorize that the internet in just how it is inherently just doesn't want that it the dynamics of the internet just don't allow really allow for that for in a long period right i mean uh, we had this discussion with bill altman about this and he sort of pushed back on this a bit about this uh supposed freedom of web 1.0 versus 2.0 but i think it can be seen and i think it's seen that we're actually we're almost trying to go back and forward at the same time and say like actually that first state of the internet was really its natural organic state and what happened next was like people the the realization from modern media like oh actually this is going to be big and then they threw a ton of resources at it and did the same thing they did before but the internet in its sort of just how it is as this you know virulent networked mimetic thriving thing it, I think almost naturally wants to shrug anything that wants to striate it off because it's just not how it works. Right. It, it, everything gets out of the box eventually. Um, but yeah. There's a couple things that you are making me think of here. One of which is that old Marshall McLuhan line that the medium is the message and that the medium of the internet is in its message. Something that says that everyone has an equal voice or ability to communicate. And so in a traditional media model, there's one person and they're behind the camera and they're the only people who own a TV studio of some kind can broadcast their message. And now, of course, we're all broadcasting in our own small studios talking to each other right now. So I know that one of the things that that old model might push back on is that the, the accusation that I see towards I guess you'd call them incumbent ideas or things that are starting to pop up in the public consciousness is that the dominant media will say, Oh, well, that's only a small fringe group or that group of weird people over there. And they're just really noisy on the internet. In other words, this particular idea has a very vocal fan base, but it's a small fan base. And one of the potentials I see with your platform is, you know, a very small vocal fan base could basically pump their idea like a coin, build it up and make people think there's a lot of trust in it when it's actually just a vocal fan base. So I'm curious, is that something you've thought about for the platform? Is that criticism something or potential thing, something you see as valid or is there something built into it? How is it you would address that? I think that the dominant media has been saying about incumbent ideas for a long time. I just want to jump in there and say that there's no sure. there's no proof that that isn't the case for the dominant media. 
I don't know millions of people who are raving mm. about CNN or Fox News or the BBC. I don't know the average person who's like, oh, dude, I love the BBC. That's big money back in them. That's the only reason they're on the TV is because they got a ton of money, right? So it's the same thing. And, and it's once again like, okay, well, if we strip away this this big thing that you've built with all the resources you have, then I would say that that top-down structure that they have is really built on that and that ultimately value is found where people are going to you know, put your money where, the, where your mouth is, is or as we're saying, put your money where your mind is, um, is quite literally the case. I mean, as soon as you monetize something in the sense that we are to say that actually everything, as Mike said at the beginning, everything becomes assimilated into this single function of what value is represented by money. Ultimately, it's like, okay, well, literally put your money where your mouth is. And um, you could say, well, a small minority are going to tons of money behind their idea and and pump it and put it in front of uh try you know basically metaphorically speaking the more money you you put behind something that the, the more eyes that are going to see it but ultimately that's completely in their interest to do so and if they value something to that extent then that is what the function's for um i would say the only difference is that the the, the mainstream media which we're sort of somewhat targeting uh they're doing that artificially in a way that that isn't crowdsourced they're basically they're almost pretending as if it's crowdsourced when actually all the people who watch the bbc i mean for instance the bbc in the uk it's like that's taxpayer money so it's like well you just you just get all the money right whereas i would say that for these small groups that you're on about who are pushing this up that's entirely everyone there's choice to go onto idea market as an individual and go actually no i genuinely believe this thing has value and here's my actual money as opposed as opposed to a sort of um coerced this thing is true simply because everyone sees it but it's like yeah but everyone sees it because it's just always been the big thing right uh that's what the mainstream media is it's like coca-cola it's like well it's it's just always been there that doesn't mean it's right it doesn't mean it's good it doesn't mean anything it's like well it's just there yeah it sounds almost like the accusation go ahead uh just james what you just said reminded me of uh you know, when you walk into most restaurants, especially fast food restaurants in America, like you order a drink and they give you a cup and you go over to fill up the cup and it's like 11 varieties of sugar, water, and then just like water. Like those are your options. And it's not because those are the options that the world has. No. It's because Taco Bell has made a deal with Coca-Cola or whatever to provide this spread of things. And they make it look like that's the whole universe, but that's just you know, what they're selling and uh, the information world in the, like the, the major media landscape is very similar that there's this kind of, you know, spectrum that they try to make feel like, uh, consists of the entire, uh, debate, but it's really just, you know, what they're, what they're allowing to emerge. It's really interesting because it sounds like that accusation that the dominant media has made that, Oh, you know, these are groups that are just very vocal is almost a psychological projection that they actually have ideas that aren't very popular, which through advertiser money, they've been able to be very vocal about. And one of the other questions I was going to ask is, you know, what the preventative measure is for them doing the same thing on your platform. So for example, what is to stop someone like CNN from taking millions of advertiser dollars building up the ideas that they want and just flooding them with money on the platform. 
it sounds like part of the preventative measure against that is that if they do that, then it might go down and that the public might not have as much confidence in the ideas they're pushing as they do and they would lose money. But is, are there other preventative measures or is there uh, that also something that's sort of built into the platform is sorry, Mike, I want to jump in because this is something I've mentioned loads of times and like me personally, I don't, I don't speak for idea market completely on this one. I want to see this happen because I think it's a proof of something. And I've mentioned this loads of times before. I want to see it happen for the mere fact as the thing I was just mentioning is that the basics really of idea market is if you truly as an individual or as a group who've come together believe something has value, an idea, a Twitter account, a blog has value, you go here, you go into idea market, you put money behind it. So that's the basic. You believe something has value. If all of a sudden the CNN Twitter account or the Bloomberg Twitter account or the Fox News Twitter account had half a million dollars behind it at the top of idea market, I wouldn't immediately believe that's because all its listeners have suddenly gone, man, we really value Fox News. I don't believe they genuinely care about it. It's once again, what, like Mike was saying, what do you want to drink? Coke, Fanta, Sprite. I don't know. You get those three. And then eventually you go, I don't really like any of them, but I'll get used to it, right? Which is the, the case with mainstream media. So I would say that if those, there's nothing stopping, there's nothing stopping anyone doing anything like that. But if they were to do it, I think it would be so transparent. That basically, if they do that, then we've been justified because they've basically made their fear transparent, right? Um, that's what I'd say. Mike? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a great way of, of saying basically what I was going to say, which is that markets don't really force you to do anything. Like you're not required to buy an iPhone just because Apple has a really high market cap. It's just a place to look for signal. So if they feel necessary to create the impression of credibility by faking a high ranking, they're welcome to spend money to do that. It might not be that effective, especially since they're competing against the purchasing power of whole populations who feel something else is valuable. And they're crowdsourcing that for free. That's not coming out of their net. That's not coming out of their marketing budget. They're getting that from their fans. So it creates this sort of profitability differential that makes faking it uh, not only more expensive, but less effective. And, and over time, it's probably just not even a good idea. So I have two questions I want to ask. Uh, the first one is a, probably a little simpler, so I'll start with that, which is, is it possible to short sell an idea on the platform? So technically, no. It's it's actually designed in such a way that it's that it's not possible to do that. Um, if When there are secondary markets, then you might be able to do small short sells within those secondary markets, but then they just create arbitrage opportunities. Like, effectively, no. And I think there are some real strengths to this, particularly that it doesn't really matter how bad an idea is. What matters is how much better its replacement is. So all of the uh, cognitive surplus that goes into criticizing things can be redirected into replacing things, which is just better. It just produces better outcomes. And... That's kind of, I guess, the more philosophical angle, but the more practical angle for the reason of shorting not being possible is because shorting makes it much less expensive for 
uh, parties with great wealth, corporations, Putin, individuals, whatever, to suppress the market signal of something. If a grassroots movement comes up with $5 million and you can short it, well, someone with $5 million can say, uh, no, there's actually no voice here happening at all. So the strength is, is that no matter how much money you have, you can't shut up the crowd. Got it. So if you think an idea is bad, the solution in this market is not to bet against the idea, but to bet on a competing idea. Yeah, that's bet bad. on its replacement. It's Netflix versus Blockbuster. You don't just stand outside Blockbuster with protest signs. You build the thing that makes people stop caring about Blockbuster. There's a there's a great quote by David Foster Wallace, which is, uh, it's a tyranny to interject a question without attending to the answer, right? So it's like, yeah, dude, I hate X. I was like, okay, I don't, no one cares. No one cares unless you're going to say about why, right? So, which is really what what Mike's on about here is uh, the market function is it, because our question is of what what value is, what you believe in, where credibility is, where you find these things. It's useless information to say this sucks because it's like okay, fine, but what where where where's your value then? Where do you find value? What's the alternative? And if this isn't valuable, what is? And so, because the problem is, if you simply, uh, as we're saying, like, if you're simply saying, Netflix sucks, Netflix sucks, it's like, well, you don't have any skin in the game. You know, what you're saying really has no weight to it because you don't have skin in the game. But if you begin saying, well, actually, there's this alternative, I've put money behind it, all of a sudden, that actually means something. Because you've, you've, you've put risk, you, you, you're in the, the, the marketplace of risk. Yeah. And other people, by having the opportunity to profit, have an additional reason to be curious, have an additional reason to investigate alternatives and weird things that they might not have had the tolerance for otherwise. And I, one thing I would just throw in here as well, with the introduction of our Wikipedia market, I mean, just to just to sort of expand, just to articulate how expansive idea markets becoming you know because we just gave these examples now of like netflix versus blockbuster which is a very you know i i would want to bring in our wikipedia market here because if you saw that battle going on you could literally find a wikipedia page for like nomadism right like leaving behind the tv there's probably a wikipedia page for uh what was the saying in the the 60s uh tune drop tune out uh tune in tune turn up drop yeah i can't remember was it dennis leary who was who was drop that? out tune drop in? out drop out tune in whatever right but like that, whatever that, you can tell that, how old we are yeah that like exiting you know like unplugging from the system right you could find the wikipedia page you could say which is basically turn on tune in drop out idiom i, exactly, I had to look right? it up so you could ter- you terrifying could mothers since 1959 so was. what i'm saying is you've got these two things here if you absolutely don't even want to enter into that paradigm of ideas you could be like here's what I value and it's nothing to do with that entire framework, but it enters into that. And that's, that's like the true expansive market is you don't, you don't even, you know, if, if everyone's going, what's your favorite shade of red, you're going, I really like tables, you know, and they're worth more, right? That's a really abstract example, but Wikipedia allows you to basically do that. I mean, what is it? 50, 54, six, roughly six and a half million pages in english and 54 million pages worldwide in wikipedia those are your options right so it's like you you walk into a restaurant you go i want a drink how many have you got well we've got 6.4 million that you can digest and then we've got another like 48 million which you you, i don't know what's going to happen but you know what i mean so and that's how conversations should be because as soon as you only have 10 options 
you know, it's like Thomas Pynchon said, if you get them asking the wrong questions, then the answers don't matter, right? If you've only got 10 drinks and those 10 drinks lead to only four different types of conversation, which is basically compressing the Overton window until people are going, I'm red, I'm blue, which is where we're at. It's like, no, watch this. Let's just rip the open Overton window open with 4.5 million drinks, some of which you can't even understand, right? That's, and th then all of a sudden you realize how much freedom there is. Yeah. So I love the idea of allowing for that much, that many different perspectives and ways of viewing the world for people to source that through markets. What I'm curious about is if I go on idea market, let's say I put money on the Christianity Wikipedia page. I think that that's an idea a lot of people seem to like. They've sold a lot of books at least. What am I buying? What, like what, ha then what happens? What determines if that goes up or down? Is it just sort of, gambling based on public perception or or what have i actually put money towards you've bought tokens that represent the wikipedia listing for christianity and the listing has okay. a rank on a table kind of like the front page of reddit and the idea is not only within our website but however else the data is used that the higher the rank a thing has the more attention it gets so what you're effectively doing is betting that by giving this a larger audience even more people will bet that it deserves even a larger audience than it currently has. So the incentive is to identify things that are underappreciated, undervalued, um, that don't get enough attention. Because if people agree with you on that to the tune of risking money to say so, that's how you profit. So what is going to determine if that goes up or down in value? Is it like if I'm putting money towards it, am I saying that... I believe in this idea or am I saying that this idea is going to become popular? Cause those are kind of two different questions. Um, you're there. They have a, they have a distinction that I'll, I can elaborate on a little bit, but you're really betting that other people sure. will bet that this deserves more attention. And the, by the fact of making that bet, you're also giving it more attention. So it's simultaneously a wager and the experiment to adjudicate the wager. There may, there may very well be things that, you, that absolutely have no one's attention, which has happened a lot already for people on the idea market team, right? We've seen the markets and we've been like, wow, people are actually, people, well, obviously people are actually using the markets the way they're in, they're, they're, they're meant. And we're finding these accounts, these Wikipedia pages, these ideas from history. They're like, wow, I've never heard about this. And as you know, some people putting big money behind these things, things you never, literally never knew existed are now in front of your eyes and then you go out yeah more people should know about this and you put money into it so it's all combined in that same thing of i believe in this if more people saw this they would also believe in this and value this and that in itself is the feedback loop got it so it sounds like the incentives of the market are for finding undervalued ideas precisely precisely it comes back to the uh the knowledge of of the of pu public knowledge management right now. And for hundreds of years, we've had this system of when you want to know what's, what's going on, when you want to know what the truth is, you look for the authority and the authority tells you, and you trust the authority. And we kind of still have these instincts in us. Like, even if you hate the New York times, you're still excited if they talk about you because it's the New York times. We have this sort of like Freudian father relationship where you hate them, but you also kind of want their respect. And when we, you know, 
we're in this model of if you want truth, then look for authority. Whether you believe that emotionally, we're kind of wired that way for this moment. What markets do is rewire us to look for value instead, because that's how investing works. That's how market works. When you're uh, a, a Wall Street trader scouring NASDAQ or a venture capitalist scouring for little startups that haven't had their big break yet, you're looking for value. You're looking for unrecognized value. And that's precisely the mindset we need to have when evaluating information, because that's how to improve public knowledge. And that's how to improve the information that goes into the decision-making machinery. And then that has results and affects people. So um, that's a large part of, of what we're doing here is, is a kind of metaphor rehabilitation. Instead of looking for authority, we want to build a system that without having to educate people, instinctively gets them to evaluate information in terms of its value instead of its social status. That word metaphor is really interesting because you wrote a piece that talked about the metaphor of a fact that I found really interesting. And I was hoping you'd break that down a little bit. I wrote some quotes down, but one of the ones that stood out was facts do not exist objectively. And I think that might raise a lot of eyebrows among people who haven't thought about epistemology in a really philosophical way because the assumption a lot of people might have with an experiment like this is, well, you're trying to find out what the facts are and what you kind of break down in that piece is that the facts are not actually the facts or not what we think of as the facts. So I was hoping you break that down. For sure. Us. I'd be happy to. And this is like a little pet obsession of mine. So yeah, I'm happy you brought it up. Um, what we typically think of as facts are just a certain category of a, opinion. And maybe that opinion is decided by experts, by scientists, whatever. Like even in the best case, if all if all the facts in the world are true, if they're all accurate, they're still opinions because they're based on someone's judgment. Someone decided what to include and what to exclude. Someone decided what to prioritize and what to deprioritize. And then someone decided to trust that they were right about those things. Um, and these are all subjective judgments that get kind of boiled down into um, the word fact, which kind of implies a certainty and permanence that's not really there. Um, it's, a, it's a linguistic convention for convenience to kind of make things feel more atomic, like the objects that we're used to dealing with an everyday life and just have something concrete to organize around. But the notion of an atomic certainty of a thing that you can just know for sure and not have to question anymore does not exist. The I'll, I'll just, I just want to clarify so one I'm, last little thing. Cause I feel like I'm not sure. quite nailing the thing. Sure, here. Sure, sure. It's that. Okay. Um, the decision not to treat something as a certainty is a decision. It's not that a certainty isn't something out there in nature. It's a decision that we each make on an individual basis to say, all right, this is certain enough that I will treat it as a certainty. And those are the things that we call facts. It's a judgment and a judgment is an opinion. So there's not actually such thing out there as a fact. I hope that's a little bit more clear. 
So if I say that it is a fact that Mike and James were on my podcast, is that not a, like what, what about how most people would interpret that statement is not a fact or incorrect or the understanding. It's not necessarily that it's incorrect, but it's that it's contingent on judgments. It depends on how people interpret what a podcast is. Were we there or did we remote call in? Did you publish it? Was it live streamed? Uh, do we speak English? There's all these kind of language games that if you take all the maxims of it together to be true, then yes. But there's all of these facts are dependent on those ifs. If you agree that English works this way, and this is what a podcast is, and this constitutes being on it, then you can establish that it's a fact. But it starts, it's the foundation of it is on, on decisions. Do we play by these rules of language or not? If yes, then that's a fact. If no, then maybe not. Um, does that, does that kind of make sense? It does. Um, I think a lot of people are, might get upset by that though. Cause they'd say, well, of course I assume all that. Also, um, Hey, I don't want to play a bunch of, I could be games, an AI. You know, just tell I me could the be facts. An AI. <laughs> this video, this could be faked. This could all be faked and there's no way to prove it. You could be asleep right now. You could be dreaming this. The person watching this, there is no way to prove to me that I exist or that you are awake. And if you decide to trust that you are, that is a judgment that you're making. And there's, there's no fact, you're, there's no fact about it. You're just deciding not to question this particular little corner of reality. You're reminding me of a philosophy student I heard of once whose final was to write an essay in response to the question, prove to me that that tree outside exists. And the student just wrote what tree and got an A plus. And that was his whole essay. That's cute. I, man, I'll really try to sound better than a philosophy student in the future. I, I hope I don't. <laughs> but uh I, I also i want to make clear that this is not like a this is not um a relativistic thing i'm saying i absolutely believe that truth is real it's just not that it's made up of little atomic certainties like a house is made up of bricks it's just kind of it's it's the wrong metaphor for approaching it one of the things you said in the piece that i really liked was the idea that even if an individual statement is true or false, the selection of facts is a series of judgments and a narrative process. In other words, if I tell someone it's a fact that Mike and James were on my show, there is a choice to make that fact something important that we should pay attention to. And I could just as easily have selected a different set of facts. Mm -hmm. I could have selected the fact of, what you were wearing or what your background was as being really important. Or I could have selected a particular thing that you said on the show as being the thing that we should all pay attention to. And so if someone says, well, these are the facts, there's also an implied that we should yes, pay attention absolutely. to. There's an implicit curation happening by the fact arbiter. That's absolutely like a great thing to make up. And I like the example that you made. It reminds me of, uh, when they were talking about ivermectin, when the media was trying to smear ivermectin as horse something, uh, I think Joe, right. Horse well, I didn't want to give it credence. I wouldn't, but uh, um, <laughs> Joe Rogan took it or something. And then someone tweeted, you know, why don't they just say Joe Rogan drinks engine coolant? Because that's what water does. You know, like these, right. these things are facts, but 
it, there's a uh, there's judgments that are hidden behind the facts, and that's what makes the metaphor dangerous. Is that it? There's there's uncertainty in there that's not being disclosed. There's a there's a mass of basically networked assumptions. I mean, when we were talking about what a fact is, I mean, one of the best examples I think of is is gravity, right? I'm not going to deny that whatever the thing gravity is exists. When I jump in the air, every single time I've done it so far, I've come back down and landed. Many people will tell me it's the, the it's gravity or the theory of gravity. I've accepted that, but I would also admit that I haven't even the uh, the faculties, the scientific knowledge or know-how to actually genuinely understand what they're saying. I'm like, okay, well, that sounds like a fair theory. I know really nothing about gravity. Most people have just taken it on complete faith. It's a fact, which when you begin to think about it, you're like, actually, I know nothing about this. And in terms of gravity, it's not that dangerous. It's It doesn't really affect your life that much, whether or not the scientists say, oh, it's a big spaghetti monster in the middle of the earth that pulls you down with invisible strings. It doesn't matter, right? It's not really going to change anything. But when the media begin to basically do the same thing with certain assumptions that they're making and people just take them on because once again they're like the experts of uh knowledge that's when it gets dangerous because people are making assumptions which actually if they knew everything else then their lives could change for the better and they would be more informed and they might even realize that people are out there to that that, that don't have their best interests at heart right so it's like a fact really seems to be an extremely deep assumption and the assumption is deeper the more you personally know about the fact the problem is that most of the facts the media are on about no one listening really knows anything about them you know when people back back with brexit for instance the media was saying certain things about why we should or should not leave the eu the depths of the eu bureaucracy i can't even imagine the average person you know, this was brought down to snippets of here's why you should or shouldn't. That's, it was ridiculous. The average person can't know that. And it was completely in their interest to enter into the noise of the internet to go, actually, no, go do some research because they're, they're molding the facts and making you just give these very quick assumptions of the data. So, yeah. yeah. There's uh there's two things I I want to take away from that James. One is I'm never jumping again because I don't know <laughs> if I'll come back down. Well, you don't. You can't prove that. Exactly. That's that's the David Hume thing. That's uh induction. That's a problem of induction right there. Like you can't you can't be sure of the future like the sun will come up tomorrow. And that's that's an important part you mentioned Brendan uh metaphor earlier that facts are a bad metaphor because they imply that the world is made up of little certainties, but it's actually just made up of uncertainty. Uncertainty is the fundamental situation of knowledge. And so markets are often talked about as, you know, a risk management an uncertainty management markets have an implicit basis in uncertainty. And how do you manage that uncertainty? And given that people participating in markets are already doing that, it's a much better metaphor for engaging with knowledge than pretending that it, the universe is a bunch of little certainties stacked on top of each other. It's interesting because it seems like the belief or the assumption of the dominant media is that there is a certainty and there's all this uncertainty that seems to be coming through the internet, this misinformation that we need to get rid of somehow. 
So we just have the certainty. And it sounds like the assumption that you're beginning from is uncertainty is a fact of human existence. It's always going to be with us. Unless you're God, you can't know everything. And even then, there might be things you're not aware of. So let's start with the assumption that there's things we're going to be uncertain about and try to manage uncertainty rather than treat it as something that isn't a part of the way that we naturally are. Exactly. And it sounds like a philosophical nitpick. It sounds like something that only nerds care about. But in these little cracks between the metaphor and the way things are, entire civilizations can fall. These little philosophical cracks become gaping voids when you build institutions upon them and rely on them for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And that's the situation that we're in now. There's kind of a philosophical reckoning that has to take place. Um, because the, the, the faults in our, in the philosophies that we've built our institutions upon are now becoming incredibly, incredibly apparent. James, you had something you're going to add. Well, I I was just going to say that not all facts and assumptions are bad within a certain framework, right? I assume every single day that this chair will hold me up. There's no point in me questioning that. I also assume that the water is not going to poison me, that, the heating's going to turn on, that the stairs I walk down every day aren't going to collapse, right? Like every single second, we're probably relying on like over a million facts and assumptions about our reality, which other people have been involved with. So we don't die. There is no way I can ever know that. But some of these facts, like the fact the stairs won't collapse, the fact my desk won't collapse, the fact this internet keeps working, they're, they're fine to assume. But it's once that mental form of assumption bleeds over into you know i don't there's no point me putting energy into worrying about whether or not my chair can hold my weight right or my chair is going to break or it's structurally sound i just trust that i assume it but if i begin to bring that form of mental assumption which just makes my life easier over and allow other people to say oh you trust all these things just trust the media as well just trust us as well just trust these institutions as well and once that begins to bleed We've actually not realized that we've taken a mental model which is very helpful to allow us to get by in practical everyday life, and we've allowed it to basically allow other people to control us because that also makes things easier. And, you know, there is a sort of a gray area, but it's gone too far. We've allowed it to bleed too far, so we just take those same assumptions and just go, oh, well, they're the media. They must be They must be right, or they're X and Y. They must be right, and it's uh, it's a dangerous path because that bleeding keeps going. And people keep assuming bigger and bigger things. And they keep going, well, that must be right. And we're seeing that at the moment, I would say. But there you go. I would argue a lot of those assumptions aren't working for people. So you were saying, oh, it's safe to assume that this internet connection will continue. And I I just thought maybe with your internet service provider, mine is really unreliable at times. So you don't don't assume And I've had trouble with that in the past. I assume it because mine's been... I actually, I've had to like tinker with my internet a little bit and I got a different modem for it and I got a different Wi-Fi setup for it and I had to move my podcast setup a little closer to that, to that connection. So I think a similar thing may have happened with people's trust in dominant institutions and the media where, you know, you mentioned it's safe to assume this thing in the past that was useful to me will continue to be useful in the future. And I think in the past however many years people have discovered that those dominant institutions are not as trustworthy or putting trust in them has not yielded the same results 
that it might have in earlier times, although even that earlier times is questionable because maybe there just wasn't the feedback mechanism to know when dominant institutions were hurting people. So it sounds like that the past people often use past experience to make assumptions about the future and we've had enough time and enough feedback and enough access to information that people are starting to see that trust in dominant institutions, including the media might not yield the results they think it will, or that their past experience with those institutions is such that maybe they shouldn't trust them as much in the future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the connection between what you're just saying and what James is saying is that we kind of get into habits of trusting things out of convenience, not out of, out of necessity, really, because you can't just go around saying, am I awake or am I dreaming? Like that, that's just not feasible. You right. can't go around worrying about a meteor falling on your head because technically it's possible. Like you have to write things off in order to function. And the challenge comes when we confuse our personal psychological conveniences and practical purposes tricks for reality. When we think that, our little convenience moves reflect the limitations of, of the whole world. And I think media corporations kind of prey on that tendency, especially in the world of modern convenience, where I regularly move at 75 miles an hour without a lick of fear because I'm in a car. And I trust everyone who worked on every part of that car to have done a decent enough job that I'm not going to explode any second. But there's, a, there's so much trust built into the infrastructure that we regularly live in that um, there's kind of a lot of momentum in that direction of, I will just trust this for practical reasons. And that I think is uh, being, being exploited a lot now. So going back to idea market, it sounds like that on this market or on this platform, there's still the possibility of people buying into ideas that are fads or incorrect, but there's then a financial cost to them for doing that. In other words, uh, I could put money towards the theory of gravity on there, and that's probably going to be kind of a stable coin, so to speak. It's not really exciting. It's not going to, but if in the future some quantum physicist says, actually, that's not how it works at all, and there's this new theory, then me buying into that theory will have a financial cost of some kind. And the same would be true of ideologies and political narratives or statements about how the world is supposedly or is not yeah yeah exactly um yeah i would be wary of things that have incredible status right now because that in, in the current marketplace of ideas which is not a free market it's basically governed by institutions the things that have the most uh truth value in in the public knowledge sphere are probably overvalued so you know, between me and you, I probably wouldn't buy something like theory of gravity or something that everybody knows because chances are the fact that everybody knows it means it's ready for an update. But yes, that's, that's the idea that, you know, we've, our goal is not to eliminate mistakes forever. That's kind of a, a hold off from the previous paradigm of manufacture certainty and then distribute it. It's all based on the premise that you can have certainty in the first place. You just can't. And mm. operating within that, in that framework doesn't make falsehoods and mistakes any less common than letting people use their free judgment and reason at the pace that they actually reason instead of at the pace of institutional tolerance for change. 
I hope that was clear. I kind of mushed together a bunch of things into one. Yeah, I, I thought James might there. have something to add to that, so that's why I was pausing. No, nothing to add. <laughs> so I want to ask a real practical question, which is, how do I use the platform? So let's say I have someone listens to this, they love what you have to say. They've never bought a cryptocurrency in their life. They don't know how this works. How do they get started? Yeah. There are a variety of ways to buy crypto, most of which are in centralized exchanges like Coinbase or Square. Uh, I guess you can't buy Ethereum on Square. So Coinbase for Ethereum or Gemini. And then you have to send Ethereum to the Arbitrum bridge, which is at bridge.arbitrum.io. And, oh, you need a wallet for that, a decentralized wallet. Frankly, I'll, I'll be straight. At this point in time, the UX is the worst that it will ever be. And there's a there, that's a bittersweet thing. It's bitter because obviously it's not good, but it's sweet because it's the worst it will ever be. The whole industry is facing this sort of UX is the limiting factor problem like email in 1992. And if I were to guess, I would say it would take about two weeks of uh, effort like kind of part-time or full-time effort to go from zero crypto experience to using idea market, because there's a lot of layers of not just technical knowledge, but using these kind of weird half-baked tools in order to move money around in these weird new ways. And um, it's not, not ready for public adoption in the way that I really wish it was. So we're building aspects of it that are, that are more familiar feeling, but the financial aspects that actually involve the potential for profit and loss are at this point limited to uh, people who either already have or are willing to uh, guide themselves into the crypto ecosystem. Do you guys have a page that's the, this is the learn yes. how to do it page? Yeah, we have a user somewhere? tutorial. Okay. We'll yeah, we have a user notes. tutorial. Thank you for putting it in the show notes. Um, it's it's in the doc. So it is, it is laid out kind of end to end there. Um, but you know, good luck if if you, if you if you don't have crypto yet. That it's a bit of an undertaking, but I, I really appreciate it. Well, what I would say to people who, and what I've told friends of mine who don't know crypto yet, is that you yeah. should learn, because I remember in the '90s that there were people who would say, "I'm not a computer person," as like their excuse for why they didn't know how to open a Word document, or they would just sort of freeze up in front of a computer and be like, well, "I don't know how to do that sort of computer thing." And no one in the world is allowed to say that now. There are no people who are doing any kind of professional work in the Western world who are not computer people. We are all computer people now. And I think in 20 years, the same will be true of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. There are people now who say, I'm not a crypto person. And my response is always, we'll see in 20 years. I think in 20 years, the people who are not crypto say they're not are not crypto people it'll be like saying you're not a bank person or you're not a money person it's like that's kind of what you need to get through the world now and so you might yeah. as well learn now because you know the people who really learned how to use computers in the 90s have developed a valuable skill that probably made them a lot of money later because they were early adopters and i think this that's going to be true even more so if people absolutely crypto. absolutely agree um i guess i i could add that in the philosophical sense, there is something, there is a mental switch that we're aiming for. Like really, uh, idea market is an intervention at the metaphor level with crypto as the vehicle. But if you jive with the idea of something like Napster for narratives, 
Napster for credibility, this ability to route around the institutional arbiters of what we're allowed to talk about, then that's already incredibly valuable and, and amazing. I mean, Napster was centralized. You guys are probably closer to the BitTorrent of. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I guess the uh, the 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 quality that I'm going for is the sort of technologically unstoppable nature of it. James, do you have anything else you want no, to add to that? I mean, the only thing I'd say is I don't, I don't, I think it's a bit more accessible than that. I mean, I think a little bit of crypto knowledge you you'll get there, but there's a couple of little tough tough hurdles, but it's. Um, we're still fairly accessible, and I just put out there that if you if this is something that interests you, we also have a Discord, and the, all the staff are always on hand to to help if you are new to this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Send me links, and I'll put them absolutely. in the And if you want to talk about other stuff, I'm happy is to have fun too. I'm not trying to guide you off off of Idea Market either, but if you felt like uh, the the uh, the lemon was drying up, uh, we can also just jam. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you want to talk about? Anything that, that we didn't don't cover? Ask, don't ask Mike that. That would be really interesting. I mean, fortunately, James, that's too Why? vague. Yeah, yeah. I struggle. I struggle. I struggle with uh, such <laughs> we didn't, we didn't. Things. We didn't talk about all the markets, really. We didn't mention. Well, so there's. Yeah, we should mention that the, the four markets are of five months? Five months. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, let's hear it. Because <laughs> I, I was actually surprised by the ones that you had on there. And then there were also ones I was surprised. What well, ones were you surprised there. we didn't so have? Let's go through the ones. Yeah, that what are you surprised we didn't have? Okay, so what, what I saw on the site, one of the ones I was surprised, I saw Twitter on there. So you could basically put money on a public figure or or Any Twitter, Twitter personality account. of some kind. And yeah, and I was surprised that it was limited to Twitter because Twitter is making a lot of decisions around censorship that might mean that the account you put money on gets banned later. So that's obviously a huge risk. But so if I put, you know, I, the top name on idea market right now, I think is Elon Musk, his Twitter. If Elon gets banned from Twitter, what happens to that? Yeah. Uh, like, are, are we betting on the Twitter account or are we betting on Elon? Right. Which is no, you are betting the on the case. Twitter account. So the markets inherit the vulnerabilities of the platforms that they're curating. So that is absolutely something to consider that at the same time, when you're thinking about how to support a person or an account, you're also thinking about the platform through which you're doing that. So we are, you know, you know, we're crypto native, so we're going to plug into a lot of crypto apps. And one of the ones that's coming up soonest is Minds, the alternative social network um, the open source, uh, alternative social network. I think they're, they're the largest of its kind and they have a very, um, strong freedom of speech, freedom of thought sort of, uh, philosophy behind them. And I think there's a lot less ban risk, uh, than, than on Twitter in that particular case. I just want to interrupt here for a moment and let you know that there were about 40 minutes of show that I decided not to include in the main podcast because the discussion included certain keywords that social media platforms might not like. In this segment, we talk about how Idea Market would handle social media platforms that are disliked by the mainstream media, how they would handle people placing ideas on Idea Market that might be really controversial or offensive or disliked. And we also talk about Mike and James' 
recent conversion to Christianity, and they share some of their personal story there. So if you're interested in that discussion, it is behind the paywall for the show at brennamrata.com slash show. Just go there and you can get that extra piece of discussion. Again, I decided not to include it because I'm trying to keep this show on social media platforms and some of the stuff we talked about they might not like. And also talking about certain controversial ideas includes things that might be taken out of context. So if you're really interested in that discussion and it was a fascinating discussion, please go to brennamrata.com slash show. And now here's the rest of our episode. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, before we finish up, I, and I will include this in the main episode, where can people find you? Where should they go after listening to this? Idea Market is at ideamarket.io. I'm on Twitter, twitter.com slash harmonylion1. And James, your Twitter? Uh, I'm meta under underscore nomad. I would also say if you're really interested in Idea Market and what we're, what we're doing, um, and you, after you've looked at the site, get over to the Discord because there's always conversation going on and things like things along those lines. Um, and yeah. also all the, all the socials are there and things like that. Yeah. And maybe you can help us explain it. Cool. And if you help you're- us explain it to our dads, I think that's uh, that's the goal. <laughs> well, based on what I saw, the short version of how to join is you buy some Ethereum on a place where you can buy that, like Coinbase or Gemini. You move it over to Arbitum, and then you move it from there to a MetaMask wallet. The uh, order of that is a little different. The, the, the I'll, I'll, if, if, if. Okay. No, you go to <laughs> MetaMask, go and it. then you move it to Arbitum. Yeah. Because it, it isn't that complicated. <laughs> okay. Go buy some Ethereum. Okay. Send it to a MetaMask wallet. Okay. Then go on to bridge.arbitrum uh, and bridge some of your – leave a little bit of Ethereum. And then bridge some of the Ethereum. So that's okay. now layer two Arbitrum Ethereum. You have both. Then when you go back to the site, your wallet will say you need to move to the Arbitrum layer. So you're on that network, which is the le- network we're on. And then you're on it. And then basically you can buy what you want, list what you want, do what you want. It's um, it's just the Arbitrum bit that seems tricky, but all you've really got to do is just go somewhere and change a little bit of your Ethereum. It's not all that tricky. Uh, yeah, and then from there, and if you if you have an account which is your own, your own Twitter account, you might want to list. Many people are doing that. Then the whole walkthrough of how you verify it so that you can get the interest from uh, the listings uh, is there as well. Oh yeah, yeah. That's hold up because I'm gonna. I'm totally gonna list that's my one account. One thing we we didn't mention. So that yeah. By the time one this episode we, airs, I need to mention right at the end. I really need to mention it because we actually missed it off. Is that another thing? Yeah. Idea market is we've mentioned all this other stuff. It's an income stream. For all, there is a percent return of interest for whoever's account it is. Um, so if it's your Twitter account and people put in a million dollars, you're going to get, uh, what is it, Mike? Roughly, what would that equate to? Typically, typically the interest rates have been between three and 15%. So you might get five, let's say $50,000 a year. The, that, function is currently paused because they don't have uh, the right kind of money markets on arbitrum yet but it was working on layer one and it will work once uh once arbitrum gets itself sorted out uh but yeah the the way it works is since you're you're not buying tokens from like a person who's selling them to you you're buying them from a smart contract you're buying them basically from a digital vending machine and when you put your money in you get your tokens out 
the money that you put in gets held in a decentralized lending protocol that lends it out to other people. And then when they pay back those loans, they pay it back with interest. And so that's the interest that we're paying to the owners of the accounts. So if you uh, attract a million dollars of uh, investment in your in a listing, that you don't get to keep that money, but you get to keep the interest that that money generates. So I, it sounds like this is similar to, uh, there's another person interview who's, he was trying to create like a Patreon model for people where you could stake crypto on someone and it would go to them. It sounds like with this, you have the potential if someone lists your Twitter account to collect interest on that, and then they can also make money by hopefully your account being valued. Exactly. So the person who buys makes money by buying low and selling high. And the person who is listed makes money by earning the trust of their audience to the extent that they will put money behind them. And then they have an income stream from that. All right. So by the time this airs, my Twitter account will be on your site. Please go. I think I'm a undervalued idea in the world. I agree. And that when, when your book comes out, it's going to be even more so. Oh yeah. Well, if you've got Amazon integrated by then, then I can, I can push that up too as well. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll bat that around internally. That's, that's a good idea. Now, when you say bat that, is this a, uh, are you being serious? No, I'm being serious because, (laughs) are you? uh, Well, okay. No, I, I am, I am being serious. Sorry, I come from the film world where when someone oh, says, like, sorry. you talk about no, that. No, I should know better. Like, I'm in LA. Never. I should know better. <laughs> no, no, no. No, an, an Amazon market is is really a good idea. Um, I mean, there's some there's some, there's some some logistical questions, but no, I'm, I'm very interested in doing something like that. I'm also autistic enough to ask, just directly ask, like, do you really No, I appreciate that. <laughs> I really appreciate that because I, too, sometimes need that level of help reading between the lines is is not really is not not fun sometimes yeah. anyway so ideamarket.io that's the place to go i'll include links in the show notes for all the things about how to sign up and also the article that you wrote on the Thank metaphor you. of facts is there anything else you guys want to add before I just we wrap had tons up of fun man yeah, and thanks, uh, man. look forward to doing this again at some point cool well thanks for coming on I'll, I'll end it here see you all later Thank you for listening to The Brendan Murata Show. If you liked this episode, please share it with someone else who would also like it. And then go on whatever platform you listen to the show on and leave a positive review. If you want to support the show directly, go to brendanmurata.com slash show and subscribe there. Paid subscribers get special unreleased bonus material and live events that are only available to them. Once again, that is brendanmurata.com slash show. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you all later.